0: up to mark chapter 12 you're probably going to be spending some time with family uh, over the next few weeks it's the holidays as we all enjoy this time of year and you might have heard the saying in polite company you should not talk about religion or politics you have heard it before that's what people say these topics are notoriously touchy topics aren't they and uh you bring them up around the table around a holiday meal at some point and often things can get out of control things can be taken personally issues are highly sensitive if you're to sit around and discuss the football game in the afternoon it might be something different but you bring up politics or you bring up religion and who knows what might happen now i don't know what you expected on a kind of festive christmas sunday i don't know if you expected that we'd be talking about politics this morning but when you're committed to expositional preaching you got to preach the text according to pew research center's analysis of 12,832 sermons Last year, in the year 2020, sermons from 2,143 different churches in America, it is said that politics and the theme of politics was picked up and increased more last year than ever. It had been a topic that found its way into the pulpit more than recent years, perhaps due to the election, to COVID, to mandates, and various strong opinions on various issues, all these things were reason for a major uptick in talking politics from the pulpit. Some pastors even found that if they struck the right note from the pulpit about certain issues, it could maybe increase their attendance. And so they began preaching more politically oriented sermons. Interestingly, probably correlated and how I'm saying things is that this has also been a very divided time, hasn't it? Very divided time. I hear it regularly about churches splitting or pastors under pressure from their congregants to speak or to be silent, to say nothing about this issue or to address that issue. Some pastors, actually not some, many have resigned. The pressure's too much. Why did you talk about that? Why didn't you talk about this? Elder boards have been divided. Church members who five years ago felt very at home with their congregation, maybe during the last couple of years, have felt disconnected, disjointed, maybe out of place. I wonder how many of you have felt things like this, in your own life, around the political issues of the day. By the grace of God, Grace Rancho has been able to experience much unity from the top down, not because we're all like robots, cultishly adopting the same opinion about every possible thing, but because our hope is in Christ and we want to continually set our hope on Jesus himself and look to him and let the transcendent gospel be the basis of our unity and let other issues be areas where Good Christians can disagree. But there are some families, unfortunately, that have gone silent because of politics. There are some friendships that have been severed because of politics. There have been some relationships that once close have now become estranged and distant because of politics. You might listen to all this and say, well, maybe we should never talk about politics after all. I mean, maybe the old axiom's right. To talk about politics is to introduce divisive things and to polarize people, and maybe it would be just better of us to never broach the subject at all. Well, if you're an expositional preacher, and you have to go to the text and let the text speak, and go verse by verse, and let God's word set the agenda for the diet of preaching for the church, and guess what? Sometimes you've got to talk about politics. Because Jesus addresses a very political issue. And we're going to talk about this morning. Christians actually can't really adopt that saying at all. Don't talk about religion or politics. We will talk about Christ. We will talk about our Lord. Will we not? We will talk about what we believe about these things. And if people see that as talking about religion, well, so be it. We have the best news in the universe to tell. And so we talk about those things. And when the occasion is right... And when it's wise, and when it's there in the text, and when things are clear, we have the go-ahead by Jesus himself to talk about politics as well. I want to point you to the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 to 17. Verses 13 to 17. I want to remind you where we are in this Gospel so you can get the whole context. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of Jesus' life on Sunday... He entered into Jerusalem to the the crowds uh, exalting him and crying Hosanna and acknowledging him as the son of David on Monday he went into the temple he cleansed the place he cleared it out of its idolatrous blasphemous greedy hypocritical practices he went in and did that creating a stir to the degree that the next day the leaders of the Israelites the Sanhedrin sent some chief priests and elders and scribes to go confront him about it and there was some Showdown in the temple courts. If you remember the pilgrims coming from all over would have come at this point at this part of the year for the Passover. They would have been coming into the temple. This was a very public main stage debate or confrontation that's happening. It's very much on display. Jesus is having this confrontation with the leaders of Israel. If you remember at the end of chapter 11 verses 27 to 33 they asked him about his authority. Again they're trying to dupe him. They're trying to embarrass him they're trying to discredit him and Jesus is so wise brilliant even how he responds he turns it on them and he does not answer the question about their authority and he in fact exposes them and then we looked at last week chapter 12 verses 1 to 12 where he then tells a parable remember this of the wicked tenants The wicked tenants who represent the leaders of Israel, who God had given Israel, these leaders. Israel represents this vineyard. The tenants were supposed to care for the vineyard, and God comes looking for the fruit of the vineyard, and the tenants will not give any fruit. They end up killing the messengers God sends. They end up killing the son that God sends, which is a foreshadowing of exactly what they want to do with Jesus. And now, here is another scene where we see Jesus under fire. They want to trap him again. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes and the elders failed. They got totally abused by Jesus. I mean, they, they tried to come in with their questions and Jesus owned them. And they kind of went off with their tails between their legs. And now, something new happens. They're not done They haven't given up, they've tried a new strategy. Let's read the text, verses 13 to 17, and we're going to draw out some lessons here. Verses 13 to 17, go like this, And and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. And that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I want to divide this text into two sections, two parts, the political trap is in verses 13 to 14, and the profound teaching is verses 15 to 17. There's a trap, a political trap, and then there's a profound teaching. And so as we look through, we're going to see many principles, but that's kind of the general divide I want to look at, the political trap, verses 13 to 14. Let's look at the political trap first. It says, they send him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Who's the they? You see that first word there? Or actually, second word. You have and, which connects it to the previous section. And they, who's the they? If you're following the order of events here, the they goes all the way back to verse 27 of chapter 11. The they is the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who had tried to discredit Jesus by asking him the authority question. You remember that? And Jesus totally dodges their attack and is able to then discredit them. And they are now moving away. They recognize that Jesus told that story of the tenants about them it says at the end of the previous section in chapter 12 verse 12 they left him and went away but they did not give up they now have a different strategy what are they going to do they're now trying to discredit Jesus a different way they're sending others in Uh, these people that are designated here they are the Pharisees and some of the Herodians I like how Luke adds an additional detail. It says that they sent them like spies, pretending to be sincere. So the Sanhedrin, with its delegation, they can't get through to Jesus. They can't succeed in discrediting him. And so what do they do? They, they round up another group that's going to now go after them, Pharisees and Herodians. If you know a little bit about the Pharisees, they were the highly religious. And if you know anything about the Herodians, they were the highly political. Um, They normally couldn't stand each other, but isn't it funny how a common enemy will make new friends? What's happening here is that they feel that they actually might be able to work together in their common hatred of Jesus. It's interesting how this comes together. The Pharisees were the most religious, the Herodians were the least religious. The Pharisees were most concerned about the law of God. The Herodians were most concerned about the law of Rome. The Pharisees were most devoted to Israel. The Herodians were most devoted to Caesar. The Pharisees were intensely religious, the Herodians were political, they hated each other, Uh, but uh, for this reason, for their common hatred of Jesus, they were willing to unite against him. And it says here that they came to trap him, you see those words, to trap him, in his talk. To trap him, the word is a hunting word. It's what someone might do to a bird when they're out in the field, trying to trap it, or to a big game animal, as they're trying to hunt They go out hunting. The leaders here, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they want Jesus trapped. They go out with a specific way to trap him. Look at how they want to trap him. They want to trap him in his talk, in his words. You ever said something you didn't mean to say? The words went out and you're trying to like do this and bring them back in? But it's too late. They're already out there and people heard what you said and there's no taking them back now. They want to do that to Jesus. They want him to to say something that discredits him, that that his words go out there and ruin something about his ministry, about his life. That's what they're aiming to do. Uh, And so they are very strategic in how they do this. They have a plan. Look at verse 14. Their first part of their plan is to butter him up. That's the technical language, you know, butter him up. They also want to butter up the crowd. Look at verse 14. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. If you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. Let me ask you, did they actually believe any of this? No, they did not. They they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to eliminate him. But for the sake of discrediting him, they felt it would be strategic to act as if they were supporters, to act as if they really respected Jesus. They wanted to do that, I think, because they actually thought they could trick Jesus, first of all, and second of all, because it would actually be strategic for the crowd to see that they were not antagonistic. They wanted the crowd to feel like these people, ask him, are just one of them. They're just others in the crowd that are admiring the teachings of Jesus. This is an attempt to lower the defenses and calm the mood a little bit and, and just ask a, a genuine question. We're just really concerned about learning here. And so they, they butter him up. They make him feel like he's this great teacher. And, and he really teaches the truth. And he's trustworthy. They offer him all kinds of compliments. They're play-acting. Right? One of the things we always talk about when we address the Pharisees is that they are hypocritical. This is, this is the perfect picture of hypocrisy, isn't it? They are saying things that are true that they don't actually believe. They're, they're playing a part. They are there to do an act before the people, to, to try to trick Jesus to accomplish their own purposes. Jesus absolutely knows it. But what happens here is now that is the kind of introduction to what they want to say. It's not the question itself. But now it says that they come. That's their introduction. But now they have a question. There there are some times maybe in Washington, D.C. When politicians are trying to prove a point. That they'll aim to craft the perfect question. Not to actually draw out new information that they don't quite know yet, but the question that is meant to stump the person answering the question. Politicians often do this. And this is exactly what the Herodians, who were particularly political, wanted to do here. And the Pharisees were willing to go along with it because both of them wanted Jesus eliminated. They crafted a question and let me tell you, church, this is a well-crafted question. This is a good one. They came up with a dandy here. They were ready. They had thought this through. This is strategic and explosive, and I'm going to show you why. It says, they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Not. A question about taxes. How many of you like talking about taxes? Taxes. This is a firework. They just threw down in the temple courtyards. This is drawing everyone's attention. I'm sure, I've I've said this in previous sections where the, the, the tension had to be so thick you could have cut it with a knife. I don't know if it got any more thick than that moment after those words spilled forth from the Herodians and the Pharisees' lips a question about taxes. You realize that disagreements about taxes have been the cause of more than one revolution. Disputes over taxes have led to bloodshed more than once. I want to bring you back a little bit of New Testament history to understand why this was so significant. I don't even think we could quite understand how significant this was without some context. If you were to rewind 20 plus years from this moment to AD 6, okay? Jesus is a little boy in in 6 AD. What happened in Judea was that Rome claimed ownership of Judea. Jerusalem became part of the uh, Jerusalem as a city part of Judea became a province under Roman rule and what do you do when you put a province under your rule is you begin to tax it you begin to tax the province Judea began to be taxed by Rome. And they had several taxes. There was a ground tax, which consisted of one-tenth of all your grain, one-fifth of all your wine, and the fruit that you produced. You had to pay your ground tax. There was also an income tax which amounted to about 1% of your income. If you make anything, you got to give 1% of your taxes to Rome. And there was a third tax, and this was the most controversial tax. This was the most despised tax, particularly by the Jews. This was the poll tax. The poll tax, if I'm going to sum it up in what the poll tax was, this is the tax that you receive for simply existing You get taxed for existing. They did not like the tax. It actually reminds me of George Harrison, the Beatles, uh, guitar player, wrote that song, The Tax Man. And he said, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. I think that's probably how the Jews felt at this point. You're taxing everything. You're taxing my food. You're taxing my income, you're taxing me just for simply existing. None of the Jews liked this tax or supported it except the Herodians who were seen as backstabbers to the Jewish people. So in AD 6, 6 AD, when this tax rolls out, guess what the Jews do? revolt, okay? There was an actual revolt in those days. A man named Judas of Galilee led a revolt. He was a God-fearing Jew. He felt that to pay the poll tax was to, not. it was not only economically unjust, but it was also theologically wrong for a Jew to pay Caesar's taxes, to pay those things. He felt like it was cowardly of any Jew to start paying these things that were not right he accused his fellow jews of being part of the roman pagan system and offering that which was due to god alone to false gods he knew that caesar claimed to be divine and to pay caesar's taxes would have been tantamount to blasphemous idolatry You were legitimizing the oppression of Israel. You were actually funding the oppression of God's people. How could you pay these taxes? How could you? Didn't God promise this land to us? Don't you remember the Abrahamic covenant? The land should be ours. Don't you know that he was faithful when we came in to in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament? He helped us take this land and conquer the land. It's our land. How could you give up on it? How could you give it to Rome? How could you possibly acknowledge Caesar's authority by paying taxes? And so, Judas of Galilee was able to get a lot of people in agreement with him and revolt against the Roman Empire. It was stamped out pretty quickly because the Roman Empire at that point was massive and powerful. But you know what could not be stamped out was the spirit, the ideas that had been put into that revolt. In fact, from this conversation... That we're reading about in Mark 12. If you fast forward now 30 years. And go to 66 AD. There was another revolt from the Jewish people. For the same reason. The Jewish people did not feel that Rome had a legitimate claim to authority. And so they did not want these taxes. And so they rebelled and they revolted, which led to eventually in 70 AD, the actual destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. You know, Roman finally got fed up and say, we can't control these people. They won't be led or or they won't submit to anyone. And so we're just going to wipe them out. We'll destroy the temple. We'll destroy the place. And will make them scatter to every corner of the globe. So that's what the Romans did. Jesus actually had one of these kinds of people in his own little group. Simon the Zealot. That's what they were called. Zealots. The people who believed that Rome had no legitimate authority. They were called zealots. They were very politically charged and motivated. They did not want to admit any authority to Rome. So let's go back to that temple scene. You know that tax poll tax. What do you think, Jesus? Should you pay it or should we not? This is like you're at home with your uh, family and you got your right wing aunt and uncle over here and your left wing aunt and uncle over there. And someone walks in the room and says, hey, what do you think about vaccines? (laughs) Just to talk about a touchy subject this morning. But this would have been far worse. Hey, what do you think about the taxes? And they just kind of sit back and let that lie. What is Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? Because, here's the the issue, as one one author put it, what they're trying to do is impale Jesus on the horns of of a dilemma. Here's why. If, If Jesus says... No, you don't have to pay the poll tax. Don't pay it. It's unjust. You're funding idolatrous pagan blasphemies. If you pay that tax, you're siding with Rome against your own people, God's people. If Jesus says that, what happens? He's arrested for insurrection, and he can be put to death. That will cost him his life. But if he says, no, pay those taxes, what happens with his reputation with the Jews? Yeah, I thought you were one of us. I thought you were part of the people of God. I thought you believed this was our land. I thought you understood that God had promised this to us. Don't you realize you're siding with Rome to pay those taxes? You're offering legitimacy to a foreign oppressive government? That'll cost him his reputation. So Jesus is put into this position, which will he choose, his life or his reputation, by Friday... Jesus will lose both. It is a dandy of a question, isn't it? He is forced to ask, what should you do? Are you going to pay the taxes? Should we pay the taxes? Should we admit Rome's legitimacy? Or should we be defiant? Should we refuse to submit to it? What? There are consequences with either answer. That's the political trap. It's a good one, isn't it? But I want you to see the brilliance of Jesus. This is amazing how he responds. I think most of us would be sitting there stumbling and bumbling through an answer. Jesus is brilliant. And we're going to see his profound teaching. Let's let's look first at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, starts there, Jesus saw right through their, their masks he saw their hypocrisy. He saw that their play acting. He saw that it was all a fraud. Matthew includes the detail that Jesus knew their malice. He knew their intent. Their intent was never to know the answer to the question, but to stump him and to discredit him and to destroy him. He sees right through it, and Jesus responds to their, their question. He says, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test And immediately, watch this, he goes on to the offensive. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Bring me a coin. A denarius was a common Roman coin uh, that was used in currency in those days. It represented about a day's wages you could carry it around in your pocket. You work one day, you get a denarius at the end of the day. His questioners are able to produce one. They pull it out, and Jesus takes a look at it. And they all would have been familiar with this Roman currency. And Jesus asks, "Whose likeness and inscription is this?" Referring to the coin itself, Who, whose pictures on the coin, um, whose. Whose face is there? You guys have coins in your pockets probably. You have a dime, you have quarters, and each one of those different coins you have a likeness. There's a, a picture of a face, and different leaders of our country have been minted onto the coinage of our nation. Well that was the same as what was going on in Rome. And so whose picture is on the front of this coin? And they respond somewhat tersely. I wonder if they want Jesus to really get to answering their question. But he is doing something on his own here. And so they answer very quickly. That it's just Caesar's. Come on. We all know this. Caesar's. Caesar's. And what's happening here is he's pointing out uh, this what everyone would have known. It was the emperor Tiberius at that point that was ruling the land. His likeness would have been put on the coins that they all would have known. That's the likeness. And there was an inscription on the other side, just like our coins have little phrases on them, like in God we trust, things like that. Well, their coin had a saying too. In Latin, it was Divi Og Filius, which was shorthand for son of the divine Augustus. Referring to Tiberius was Caesar Augustus' son, and the Romans recognized, or they believed, that the Caesar was divine, son of the divine Augustus. Now, how do you think a Jew would have felt about these coins? You got two big problems with them, right? First problem is no Jew is going to be willing to recognize that Caesar is divine. And so they got a huge problem with Roman coinage because the Romans were going to be claiming divinity and they believed that there was only one God and that worship was due to that one God and that one God alone. The second issue they would have had with this was the issue of a graven image. Uh, Jews were highly adverse to any kind of graven image because of what they learned in the Ten Commandments that they should not make graven images. But here is a graven image on the back of the coin. And so they would have been adverse to using something like this. But what's interesting here is that when these guys are trying to trap Jesus, he responds with a trap for them. You see it? This is the subversive one. This is not even the explicit one. Explicit one. It says, he asked for a denarius. Apparently he did not have one, but suddenly they pull one out of their pocket. Like, hey, yeah, I got one. What do you, what do you want to know? They pull it out. They show it to him. And there it is which seems to indicate that they were the ones holding and using the pagan, blasphemous Roman currency. And by using that very currency, they were already recognizing some form of legitimacy that Rome had. Well, that's the subversive aspect of what Jesus did. But what he does explicitly is even more incredible. And what he does in his statement is a remarkable answer. If you were to sit this morning and I were to go over all the things that I studied and learned and thinking about this statement, we'd be here all day. If you were to take a political science course by the end of the year, you maybe have scratched the surface about the implications of what Jesus said here. In fact, many say that Jesus' statement in verse 17 is the basis for all Western political philosophy, that everything flows from this statement of Christ, Look at his response in verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. On one hand, it's so easy to understand any child could get it. On the other hand, this is so profound we could spend months here. There are volumes upon volumes, church, written on that sentence. And there are volumes responding to those volumes about that sentence. There is so much in relation to not only theology, but government and the nature of politics and how we should think about nations as Christians. I'm going to have to only narrow it down to three things. Three implications of this statement. Three implications of this statement. First, when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus recognizes that Caesar has legitimate authority. Do you see that? Jesus references things that are Caesar's. He is supporting the claim that there are some things that belong to Caesar. Now, this doesn't mean they don't belong to God, okay? God obviously owns everything. We'll get to that in a moment. But there is a reality of government authority that Jesus upholds and affirms. The word render is a little bit of a unique word. It has the idea of a contractual obligation. That Jesus is saying that those who find themselves as citizens in a government under an authority have some kind of contractual obligation with that government to render to it that which is due them. And this is causing us to pause and think about the nature of government. If you go back and you just think, think to yourself, what does the Bible say about human government? Your understanding of the Bible, if you were to start in Genesis and just think through government, what does the Bible say about government? Do you know that the first kind of understanding or thinking about government would come from Genesis 1? Not only do we introduce ourselves to the great governor of all creation, God himself, but we are introduced to this idea that humanity is to be governing. Genesis 1.28 What does God tell Adam and Eve, the first two people, to do? To rule, to subdue, to have dominion. Those are governing words that God creates his world and then gives it to humanity to rule over and to exercise government. And we see this playing out in Scripture, that government is God's idea, that it is God's good idea. That authority that God gives to governments is good. 2 Samuel 23, 3. David at the end of his life is reflecting on some of the things he'd learned. And one of the things he says is, when one rules justly over men, think, thinking of a king, a government, when someone rules righteously and justly over people, ruling in the fear of God, listen to this. He dawns on them like the morning light, like The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. You see what he's saying? He's saying good government, good kings, good rulers are good. They are a blessing to those who are under them. And so when there's a good king who's ruling his people, the People are blessed. God's design is for good government to exist in the world. Government is a common grace. Anarchy is from the devil. Almost any form of government is better than no government at all. Now, you don't need to think hard to understand that is all authority used for good? No. And can authority be abused? Yes. And have governments throughout history used their God-given authority to abuse the people under them? Yes. Time and time again, we have seen that fallen people use their God-given authority, whether that's a husband who's the head of a wife or a household, whether that's a boss over an organization, whether that, unfortunately, even as some leaders in a church, it has happened that those in authority have abused their positions of authority and hurt the people that are under them. But this does not negate the reality that God has designed government and that God has instituted governments. And all governments throughout history are designed and put into place by a sovereign God. Romans 13.1, there is no government that exists outside of God's instituting it. Pharaoh was put into position by God, Romans 9. David by God, 1 Chronicles, Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah. All the human kings that have ever come and gone and every government that has ever risen to power and authority, every civilization that has ever gained influence in the world, they've all been put into place by a sovereign God who rules over them all. In fact, Jesus would say to those in authority over him, you would not have any authority unless it was given to you from above. He says that to the people who are about to kill him. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he is not saying that he's pro-Caesar. Mind mind that point. He's not saying that he's pro-Caesar. He's not taking sides. He is pointing to the biblical reality that every human has been put into this world, and this world is intended to be ruled by governments, that governments existed prior to the fall, and government will exist for all time, because Jesus will be king forever, and there will be a monarchy into the new heavens and new earth. But until he comes, he has humans that rule this world. And Jesus here is even acknowledging the explosive reality that even Caesar, the pagan, the blasphemer, is due certain respects. Put yourself in the the shoes of a first century Jew. You, You go, okay, I know God called my people. He redeemed us out of Egypt. He gave us that promised land. I've been learning the Ten Commandments from childhood. I know that God always ruled over Israel and He gave us kings and we through our kings were able to expand influence and demonstrate God's character to the world. One day the Messiah will come and He'll free us from the oppressors. He'll give us the land. We'll rule with Him in our promised land. And then the Messiah comes and he goes, pay your taxes to Caesar. Caesar's rule is legitimate. You should submit to it. It's set in place by God himself. Church, a government does not need to be Christian to be legitimate. Caesar was not a legitimate Christian but he was a legitimate Caesar. I remember when I first got here um, early, in a few few months into the ministry here at Grace Rancho, I was in my office and I got a call from a young man who wanted to talk to me about something and I'd never met him before, never seen him since. And he, he came in and wanted to chat. He looked visibly angry or, or upset, even tremblingly so. And I invited him in and he sat down at the chair across from my desk and He wanted to talk to me about the highly uh, sensitive issue of abortion. And he wanted to ask me what I I thought about that and what our church's position was about abortion. And I told him, you know, I I believe that abortion is murder. I believe that life begins from conception and that we should protect the sanctity of life. He asked then, what what are you doing about it? I told him, well, it's not that we're picketing uh, abortion clinics, uh, but we do preach the gospel. We do preach the sanctity of life. We do try to teach a biblical sexual ethic. We do try to build strong families. We do try to do all these things, talk about the image of God and man. And so all of us, no matter who you are, from the greatest to the, the least, even those in the womb, are, are worthy of protection and love and care. It wasn't enough for him. He asked me, do you pay taxes? Don't you realize that your taxes are going to fund Abortions? You're funding murder. He wanted me to do something more. He wanted some sort of resistance to the government. Have you ever asked yourself that question, by the way? Have you ever thought about the reality that your tax dollars are funding things that are dishonoring to God? that your tax dollars are funding education that teaches that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, that your tax dollars are funding abortions. Have you ever thought about that? There were horrors going on in first century Rome that taxes funded as well. And in Matthew 17, people come up to Jesus and the disciples and they explicitly ask him, do does Jesus pay taxes? They ask him that. You know what the response was? Yeah, he does. Jesus paid taxes. Consider this, church. Jesus paid the taxes that paid Pontius Pilate's salary. Jesus paid taxes, and those funds went to support his own death. Jesus' taxes were going literally to the government that would commit the worst crime ever in the history of humanity, the crucifixion of the innocent Son of God. Jesus knew it. And so we have two options. We say either Jesus was a fool, he should have known better, or we say that Jesus was right and that we should follow his example and that we should recognize that God has put government over us and they are not perfect and they are not Christian and sometimes they are downright evil, but according to Jesus, paying taxes to the government does not make you complicit with the government's sins. Otherwise, Jesus is a sinner. And Jesus is not a sinner. What this is teaching us, church, is that Christians are good citizens. Christians pay their taxes even if they don't agree with them. They are not complicit in the sins of a government that uses money for bad things. Jesus' statement inspired many following explanations in the rest of the Bible. When, when Paul was teaching on the issue of government in Romans 13, he made it clear in verse 6, because of this, because of the reality that all governments ultimately come from God and his own authority, verse 6 says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And Peter, who would have been right there watching and listening to this whole thing, years later, as he reflected on this principle, would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether... It be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And then he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So there is a legitimacy that governments have over their citizens, even when they are pagan like Caesar. And Jesus calls his followers to render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Caesar. That's the first point. The second implication of this statement is this. That we need to recognize that Christians are not dependent upon government support. See this here? You might ask, how do you get this from the text, Eric? Simple. If Jesus is saying that it's okay for Christians to live in Rome as tax-paying Roman citizens, then he's implying that it is not necessary for that Roman church to be To have a Christianized government over them. Jesus is okaying the reality that there can be Christians in Rome paying taxes unto Caesar. And they are not in sin for doing so. The the, the government doesn't need to be Christian for them to be there, for them to thrive. Jesus is legitimizing Christians who live in Rome. He is not saying you need to flee because you can't pay taxes to this government. He is not saying you're in sin for paying taxes and being citizens of this government. He is saying that if, if you are a citizen of Rome and your authority is Caesar, then pay your taxes to Caesar. You can live in a nation that is outrightly antagonistic to Christianity. You see that? You can live in Rome. You can do this. You're not called to... Defy the government by not paying your taxes. You're not called to overthrow the government. You're not called to revolt. You're not called to gain and use political power, and only then can you be fruitful and faithful Christians. He, you're not called to do any of those things. He is saying, give them the, due, give the government what's due them. Render to Caesar what you are contractually obligated to give to Caesar. Give it to them. You can live, Christian, in any pagan government validly, legitimately, without dishonoring the Lord. This is what he's hitting at here, that it's possible for a Christian to be a Christian in Rome. In fact, think of what goes on in the following years after we get to the end of the New Testament history. What happens to the Christians in the Roman Empire? Does the Roman Empire become more Christian? Not until a few hundred years later. I mean, the Christians are going to have to live under the authority of Nero, Caligula, Tacitus, Claudius, Domitian, and other emperors who hated Christians and wanted to stamp them out. They wanted Christians gone, wiped off the face of the planet. They didn't want them to exist anymore. And how radical would Jesus' statement be to these Christians who are told, pay your taxes to Caesar. Yeah, the guy who wants to kill you, pay your taxes to him. See, some have thought that Christians need to have politics in their favor to survive. Christians need to have the political upper hand in order to advance. But this would go against all that God has revealed to us in Scripture about how He works. How did the Messiah come to the world? As a political powerhouse, as a king, marching with an army? In a manger, as an infant? Salvation is not going to come through insurrection, but through crucifixion? The gospel is not going to advance through power plays and dominance, but through humble, obscure service and proclamation of the gospel. You know, let me just say, I am all for fighting for the rights and believing that God has given us inalienable rights and believing that there are certain governments that are worse and certain governments that are better and that Christians can and should work to win elections and secure votes and fight for laws that promote peace and harmony in the land. We certainly should pray for those things. We pray for our leaders on a regular basis on a Sunday morning. But he is legitimizing here the reality that it is sometimes the case that Christians will live in places under rulers that are anti-Christian. Here's the good news. We can survive it. The thing that church history shows us is that Christians will survive. Jesus will build his church. Even if they have no political power at all. I like what one author said. Christians are like cockroaches. We can survive anywhere. Read church history. Uh, Read about how Christians survived the Roman Empire. Read about communist Russia. The evangelism of Richard Wurmbrand to his fellow cellmates amidst torture. Read about what's happening in underground churches in China. Oh, I thank God for what we have in our nation and the freedoms we have and the ability to gather. I praise the Lord for that, and I want uh, to even say that I am thankful, and that is something I want to be preserved. But I also want to say that if Caesar becomes the leader of America, we can live and survive, and we are not dependent upon the cooperation of any government to blossom and be fruitful and flourish as we labor to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. We can. We can. What this also means, just as an aside, that you don't need to leave California to be a faithful Christian. <laughs> we can be faithful even here. No matter what happens... We have survived bad presidents, bad governors, tyrants, bad congresses, bad parliaments, kings and emperors, and all through the centuries Christians have been good citizens amidst fallen regimes and they have honored their governments and they have been faithful and fruitful even as they were attempting, it was attempted that they would be stamped out. In fact, I would say that the times that Christians tried to advance God's purposes through political power was the times that they got into trouble. Think the Crusades, for instance. Leave political power to Caesar, pay your, pa- pay your taxes, submit, and get to work for the kingdom of God, which is not of this world. Let's look to the third aspect here, the third implication of this statement, where he now gets to the second part, render to God the things that are God's. Here's the third implication we need to recognize is that God has a total Claim over your life. Keyword, total. Complete. You see, the coin had the likeness of Caesar on it, and so it belonged to Caesar. But you know that you are an image bearer of a holy God. You have the very likeness of God on you, stamped into your very being. And what Jesus is getting at here is that you are to render yourself entirely, unreservedly, totally and completely to God and God alone. That is what is being said here. That there are some things that you will render to Caesar because they belong to Caesar. But all of you, every aspect of your life, every aspect of your career, every aspect of your marriage, of your family, of your job, of your relationships, your affections, your thoughts, all of it is to be offered entirely, unreservedly to God. And God alone, He has the full reservation of your life. Complete ownership of all that you are. There is a part of your life that Caesar has some say in. That governments have some legitimacy in. But God has a full and complete and total claim over your life. And if ever the two shall clash, who do we obey? God. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so when those things clash, God deserves our full and complete devotion. What belongs to God is everything. I wonder, however, if some of us have offered to Caesar what only belongs to God. Some people give their complete unfettered, unquestioning devotion to an ideal form of government. They put their hopes in politics. This statement that Jesus makes here cuts left and cuts right. Any one of us who has in our minds this idea of the perfect ideal government, and if only we could have that government Then we would be victorious. Then we would have the key to glory. That's where our hopes are. That's where life is found. If only our nation was ruled with the perfect laws. So you give your devotion to those things. You put your hope in those things. You're working for those things. Have you given to Caesar a kind of devotion that only belongs to God? How would you know that if you had done something like that? Are you okay with spiritual lethargy in your own life? But just long to be more politically active? Because that's where the action's at. Do you have a pattern of broken or estranged relationships that have been broken or estranged because of your political disagreements? Political disagreements will happen, but there's some red flag when there is a line of dead bodies behind you of people who feel hurt, offended, and run over because of the things that you politically are believing and arguing and fighting for, rather than advocating a kind of peace, even in the midst of disagreement. Do political losses send you plummeting into depression and anxiety? the news cycles you're addicted to just make you more and more worried about the future of our nation. How about this one? Which are you more fervently pursuing right now in your life? Political activism or personal holiness? Could it be that some here have rendered to Caesar the kind of devotion what only belongs to God. Are you more concerned about the state of the American government or the state of the American church? Jesus is making a claim here that there are some things that we can give to Caesar that he has the legitimate claim over our lives, but there is a limit. But God here calls us to give everything to Him. And to look to Him as our source of hope, to embrace Him as the one we trust, to set and rest all our hopes of the future on God, not in political victory, not in things turning better for our nation, but to look to God and God alone, laying down our lives in complete and utter allegiance to the kingdom of God, which is not of this world, and not giving our full and complete devotion to any political kingdom on earth. I wonder if any of you need to confess that and talk about that with your Lord. Some of us might need to, for the first time, give to God the devotion that He requires. I had a friend in seminary who was feeling empty with his life. He didn't know what was going on, completely devoid of any meaning. And a Bible that he had been given several years ago was sitting on the shelf next to him. He never cracked it open once in his life. But for one reason, he felt compelled to crack it open and begin reading. He opened it up. He pulled it down off the shelf. He began to read in Genesis 1. He began just storming through it. He's an avid reader. A few days later, he's in Mark 12. Mark 12. And he reads these words, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And right in that moment, he was struck. He had never rendered to God that which belonged to God. Well, he was a good citizen. but He wasn't a good Christian. He realized in that moment, I need to repent. God has sent his son to live a perfect life that I could never live, to die on a cross to the death that I deserved, that he rose from the dead victorious on the third day he is the ruler of the world he will come back and set up an everlasting kingdom that our allegiance is to be his and his alone and in that moment he confessed his sin of living for himself and he rendered to god that which belongs to god If there's anyone here this morning that needs to do the same i would urge you to listen to jesus give god the worship he deserves The glory due his name, the devotion that he demands, the complete and total and unreserved obedience, give that to him. That is what we have been called to. We love him, adore him, worship him, obey him, because he has loved us so perfectly. And to tie it to Christmas, isn't that why he came? He came as an infant. Yes, he was a king. He came veiled in flesh. That we might have a savior who could sympathize with our weaknesses, who could suffer with us, but who would overcome in the resurrection and prove himself to be the savior to everyone who trusts in him. Let's worship him. Would you pray with me? Lord, however this statement of yours lands on us, I pray that it would do the work of conviction. Many of us need to think things through according to this word and think more deeply about it. Pray that you'd help us even this week to reflect what it means to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. If any of us Have mistaken those things? Or are rendering to Caesar that which only belongs to God? Or refusing to render to you what belongs to you? Pray that you'd correct us. Thank you that you are patient and gentle. Long-suffering and kind. And that as we come to you confessing our need, you will certainly hear us and respond.